0: Hello and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. And today we have a very special episode of Staff Picks because I am stepping a little bit out of my comfort zone. I'm doing the first ever anime movie on Staff Picks. And we have a wonderful story of how this episode came to be and how my guest got here. So we're going to delve right into it because this is going to be a little different than most of my episodes. Uh, let's see. The movie we are talking about today is the 1997 anime classic Perfect Blue, which I will flat out admit I had never heard of until about a year ago. And uh, I've seen it a couple times now. I procured a copy. And it's actually it's a fun little thriller slash mistaken identity slash horror slash critique on modern consumer culture it's a fun little thriller of a anime movie that is not really a kids movie like you think it might be just by looking at the fact that it's a cartoon (laughs) and so we're going to delve into that this movie inspired a lot of other movies It basically invented the concept of psychological horror in anime. This is a big, big movie that inspired stuff like uh, Requiem for a Dream. It inspired Black Swan. It's a big deal, and I'm really glad it was brought to my attention. And my guest for today, uh, he is a movie fan. I've known him for a while through Facebook. And again, he was really, really big on this movie, making sure I knew about it and wanted to do it for staff picks. And I'm very excited to bring him to the show. Although, I will admit... I'm a little nervous bringing a fake version of me onto the show because there are maybe psychological implications. <laughs> so anyway, welcome to the show for the first time, Andrew Kerner.
1: Hey, Mario. Uh, super excited to be here.
0: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you got here today. Uh... <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, okay. Well, I'm an
1: amateur, uh, pretty much everything. Uh, do a lot of writing, do a lot of, uh, comedy, um, do a lot of podcasting, um, just bounce around from a lot of, with a lot of various different interests. Uh, and one of the interests I've picked up in my life is an interest in anime. Uh, and that's how I stumbled across this movie. Uh, and it, almost immediately became my favorite film. Uh, it is just... Uh, Satoshi Kone is a, a genius in my mind. It's a shame that we lost him like when we did uh, way too early. It was... Uh, what year was it? I, I don't remember now. It was like 10 years
0: ago. 2010, I think.
1: Yeah. Pancreatic cancer, I think.
0: Yeah. He died of pancreatic cancer.
1: But... Yeah, it's, uh, this is, like, his first big film, and, uh, I've rewatched it, you know, a few times throughout the years, and it, it's weird because, like, it almost becomes more relevant every time I watch <laughs> it, uh, just because, like, it had, like, it, it's very dated, you can see in, like, the tech that's used and whatnot, uh, you know, people, the the main character isn't super familiar with the internet, even, but... Like watching it nowadays, you're like, oh, okay. this has a lot to say about social media Mm -hmm. and how we like perceive people just online as, you know, personas, as fake versions of themselves, uh, as opposed to like seeing the real them.
0: Yeah, I want to follow up on that a little for people who have not seen this movie, which I'm guessing is most of the people who are listening to this podcast. It is about a pop star in Japan who decides to break from being a pop star and wants to be a serious actress. And it is all about all the ramifications that fall out around that among fans who love her, fans that think they know her. It's about celebrity culture. It's about stalkers. It's about the internet. It's about truth versus reality. It's about, you know, real people behind celebrity personas. It really is very relevant to today's Day and age, which it's it, that really jumps out at me. I didn't realize when I first watched this. This was a, this was a movie from the nineties.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's um, I really wanted to go back to the uh, the idea of like truth versus reality uh, because a lot of Satoshi Kon's films sort of focus on that duality, uh, and I I suspect that because of that i would suspect that uh he probably had a pretty big influence on christopher nolan because mm-hmm. i know nolan films uh have a lot of the similar ideas like uh people have theorized that inception is very heavily like inspired by his film paprika which is similarly about you know the the blending of dream versus the waking world this one is like the persona versus the person um He has, uh, you know, Tokyo Godfathers, which is largely about, well, is this divine intervention or is this coincidence? Um, It's, uh, you know, a very interesting theme that he really drills down on. Uh, And Perfect Blue is where I personally like how it's handled the most, just because it has so many interesting things to say about sort of who we are as people and how we see each other.
0: Yeah. Now, okay. would you say this is a horror movie? And I only ask that because I see a lot of reviews of Perfect Blue that point out how disturbing it is, how scary it is. In fact, I have to read a quote that I read just this morning. This is a review of Perfect Blue. This is a film that will leave you with profound psychological scars and the feeling that you want to take a long, long shower afterwards. (laughs) I'm curious about, what would you, how would you describe this movie? Like, is it a horror movie? Is it a thriller? What really is it? um well i guess what is a horror movie versus what is
1: a thriller yeah uh it's it had it definitely has major psychological horror elements especially uh when it gets a little further in and uh the movie starts really playing with your perception and uh honestly
0: lying to you the viewer at some points <laughs> yeah i I will say, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where there's more scenes where somebody wakes up and says, oh, it was just a dream. Yeah. <laughs> or was it? Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get into this question. We're going to delve into a lot of these subjects later as we get into the movie. But I have to tell the story of how Andrew got onto this podcast because I love this. So <laughs> this here's a good tip on all you uh, novice staff picks listeners, how to get a, how to get booked as a guest on this show. Do you remember Andrew? How you got my attention with Perfect Blue? Um, I.
1: Uh, well, I know that uh, like when I became a, a a patron of yours, we discussed uh, briefly some potential staff pick movies or whatnot. But I don't think that I really got on your radar until I purchased a copy for you.
0: <laughs> yes, that is how to do it for all my listeners. If you. <laughs> If you personally buy me a copy and have it shipped to me and say, please watch this, and we'll do it on your show, that is an excellent way to have your movie featured on Staff Picks. <laughs> <laughs> you are the first person who has ever done that, Andrew, so I appreciate your tenacity. I, I put my thumb on the scale a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he sends me this anime, and I've, I already realized I'm mispronouncing it. I said anime. It's anime, right? Uh, it, it's
1: either pronunciation is fine uh uh anime is is probably the more proper japanese pronunciation but it's also based off of the english word animation so
0: well what's the difference now i'm curious i okay i will flat out admit i know nothing about anime I, i will tell you right now here's my history okay for everyone here's my entire history with anime to this day in 1982 there was a cartoon called star blazers which I thought was the coolest thing ever. This Japanese anime show that was brought over to the U S it was on American cartoon. It was on American TV every morning. So every kid, my age watched that before school after school. It was the greatest thing ever.
1: Yes. Space battleship Yamato.
0: Yes. Yes. Space battleship Yamato. And I loved that show. And I saw that in 1982. And then in 2020, you sent me perfect blue. So that's my history with anime. So what's the difference between anime and animation? I'm curious.
1: There there literally is none. Anime is Japanese animation in the same way that, you know, you talk about French film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, anime has, you know, a cultural background. Uh, it has some of its own language. Uh, like, you know, you know, film has its own language, and that language is going to be a little bit different depending on, like, where the movie is from that you're watching, uh, because, you know, Hollywood movies are different from independent movies, are different from, you know, like Japanese movies, are different from British movies, different from French movies, and so on. Uh, so anime is essentially just animation produced in Japan. Um, and I think that anime has gotten the reputation it has just because, like, Japan takes animation seriously, whereas in America, it, it's sort of still viewed as more or less just kids' stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, there's plenty of Japanese anime that is, you know, kids' stuff, uh, that is intended for younger children, uh, but there's also plenty of stuff that isn't. Uh, so that that's kind of what I'm coming in here to try to uh, present, like, Anime isn't, like, just this niche subculture or whatnot. It's essentially, you know, a whole, a medium that America is kind of behind on a little bit just because we're not taking it as seriously and not pushing it as, you know, a serious medium as opposed to something that's for kids.
0: Yeah, and I will fully admit I fall right into that boat. I'm traditionally kind of biased against animated stuff. I don't really like most animated stuff. I'm not really a Disney fan. Like, I like them for what they are, but they feel like they're kids' movies. They're not really for me. I've never really liked The Simpsons. I'm, like, one of the only people my age who never really watched The Simpsons. It took me forever to give South Park a chance because I'm like, this is like a cartoon. So it's like... I am your typical American who really doesn't take animation seriously as an adult movie, which, like, when you sent me this movie, and I know, like, there's people who already love this movie, so this will sound very odd to them, but I'm just traditionally not an animation fan. I watched Perfect Blue for the first time, and I'm like, this is way more adult than I ever expected it to be. <laughs> in fact, I will flat out say, this is the rapiest movie I've ever done on Staff Picks.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it has some uh, some things in it.
0: Now, okay. well, now I should clarify, it's not really a rape movie, but there's very some some disturbing uh, scenes. It's about an actress who's basically starting to become a more serious actress in her craft, trying to take on more meaty scenes. She wants to do these more adult scenes. So there are definitely some simulated cartoon rape scenes that you're probably not expecting going into a movie like this.
1: Yeah, uh, it's it's intense. I have to. Warn people whenever I show them, uh, just because the, like there there are, um, well there are two sort of rape scenes in the movie. Uh, the first one is, you know, done on stage as part of a show, uh, and then the second one is an actual attempted rape, uh, which doesn't go all the way through, but it's still like a, a terrible assault. Um, and honestly the first one, the fake one Mm -hmm. is almost harder to watch. Yeah. Uh, Just because like the, the fallout of that and everything. Uh, But I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that as we (laughs) go through the film.
0: Yeah. This is without question. One of the harshest movies I have ever done on staff picks. It's definitely (laughs) an R rated. It's really violent. There's some really intense blood scenes. Now I will say like, if you've never watched anime movies, if you've seen kill bill, you've probably seen kill bill. Think of the cartoon section when Oranishi, you know, puts the blood in the guy, and all this blood comes spurting out in cartoon fashion. Those are the murders in the scene, but it's not played comedically; it's played very seriously. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, yeah. Thank you for turning me on to this twisted little uh, corner of the uh, of the movie making world, Andrew.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no problem.
0: But again, that's why you sent it to me because you know I like psychological thrillers. You know, I like these dark, twisted movies. This movie really does fit in with the stuff I've covered on Staff Pick. So I will say your instincts were correct. So I'm really glad we're talking about this today. Yeah, if nothing else, like even if
1: it's a movie that you don't necessarily like all that much, I think it's one that your audience may at least like, at least some people in your audience.
0: Yeah, and I have posted about it that I'm doing a uh, podcast on Perfect Blue. And it doesn't get a lot of recognition, but the people who do recognize it all say the same thing. That is a fantastic movie. So it's like it like has a really fervent core of admirers, which is something that I look for in a staff picks movie. Yeah, and it is it's
1: one that has definitely had an impact on filmmakers for sure. Um, like I said, I suspect that Satoshi Cohn was or uh, that uh, Christopher Nolan was inspired by Satoshi Cone. Uh I know for sure that Darren Aronofsky, uh, that hack fraud, pretty much ripped it off <laughs> a, a few times. Uh, there is a scene in Requiem for a Dream that is directly lifted from Perfect Blue, and Black Swan has a lot of similar themes and a lot of very similar imagery, especially like in terms of the, the reflection, which is a huge uh, visual motif throughout this movie.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because this is something I wanted to get into before we get into the plot. This movie is, like, ridiculously influential on a lot of stuff. And I kind of mentioned it at the start. I was reading the uh, Internet Movie Database and Wikipedia on Perfect Blue before we started this podcast. And I think I read somewhere that, like, there was no such thing as psychological horror in animation in Japan prior to this movie, which shocks me. Huh.
1: I, I wouldn't know for sure. I do know that uh, horror in anime is usually it usually gets a bad rap. There's not a ton of really good stuff out there in terms of horror anime.
0: Huh? Um, Yeah. Well, I was going to say that I was just reading all this trivia, how this movie was never really intended to even be a movie. It was like a, some kind of soft short or short, short film animation film. It was like, released to all these film festivals it was really just an experiment and animation and then it like slipped through because nobody really took it seriously and it became an unexpected hit like are you aware of all the back history and stuff
1: uh i am not unfortunately i haven't delved too super deep into it but
0: okay that's fine yeah it's it's basically that this guy just wanted to write a story. It's basically a critique of celebrity culture in Japan in the late 90s where these, uh, I guess, J-pop idols and celebrities were starting to become overwhelmed by the fans, about by stalkers with the internet and stuff, which, like you said, is only more relevant today. I think people don't realize that.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, I I think one important thing to bring up in terms of like idol culture in Japan, uh, idol culture is very big. Um, It's kind of similar to like the the boy band culture that you know we have here, or you know pop idols here to an extent. Uh, But in Japan, it gets super fervent. Uh, There, there's a lot of stuff uh, surrounding sort of the idea of purity, Mm -hmm. like. Idols are not allowed to publicly date anyone uh, because then their fans can't sort of project a relationship onto them with uh, their own. They're like, they're supposed to be accessible. They're supposed to be, you know, someone that everyone can love. And if they have a relationship, well, that undercuts that. So um, fans get super upset uh, when they find out that, like, an idol has oh my gosh had sex with someone mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a very toxic culture um it's one that i am not super fond of uh but it's also one that is like there's a lot of elements of it just everywhere around the world uh so it's still pretty relatable even if you don't know sort of the ins and out of particularly japanese idol culture
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you mention that because I vaguely remember, now I don't really follow J-pop or that whole culture. I I know the basic gist of it, but I do remember seeing in the news fairly recently. Now, this movie was made in 1997 when the director is pointing out, you know, this uh, fascination with J-pop idols might be becoming a problem. I remember just reading recently in 2021 or 2020 that it's like a huge problem now with these J-pop and K-pop idols committing suicide because there's so much pressure on them.
1: Oh, oh yeah. I, I, I did not know about that. I kind of stay away from that fandom as much as I can. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I didn't realize that like, it was as intense as it was.
0: Yeah. I just read, I think it was within last year, at least three or four stories about some famous J pop idol at 22, just killed herself, jump off a bridge, you know, took a handful of pills because the pressure is so much. And there's so much pressure from the uh, organization, from their agency to maintain a certain image. And the fans kind of creep in and try to, you know, make some fake relationship with them online. So like, even though this movie is set in 1997, it's really really relevant to today. I did, that's the one thing I really have to get across to people.
1: Yeah, and like you you can even see some of the stuff that uh goes on with this in like reality TV. I know that you're, you know, you're a reality TV buff to mm-hmm. an extent, um one might say that. And uh like you look at these people who have come out of an experience like Survivor and oftentimes they do not come out of it well-adjusted because they're these normal people who are thrust into the spotlight. And, like, you can really look at, you know, the first seasons where some of these people were, like, huge stars, just elevated from absolute nobodies to huge stars. And a lot of people from, like, those early seasons of Survivor have just decided to stay out of the spotlight. And you can kind of see why. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a little rant I've gone on on Survivor Podcast. I don't know if you guys listen to my reality TV stuff, but if you don't, that Survivor came out, biggest show in the world. Everyone was a celebrity that came out of that show. But there was a very important element that existed in 2000 that didn't exist 10 years later. And that was the fact that the fans could not contact the players directly. There was no social media. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, 20 years later... The fans are all over the players' social media. And you really see this creepy dichotomy that has crept in where fans have developed this this relationship in their head that they have with these players or this edited person they've seen on TV. And social media has made it so creepy and exacerbated it so much that I honestly, personally, don't think reality TV should exist in the age of social media. I think it's irresponsible. I think it's going to be very dangerous. I think... Someone's going to cross the line. And just like Perfect Blue, I think a player is in danger at some point. So, yeah, yeah, I've talked about this before. And this movie spells it out perfectly. When fans get a little too obsessed with a fictional image of someone they see on TV, it really can be a problem because there's a lot of people out there who were not mentally well, honestly.
1: Yeah, uh, and like we said, it's a movie that... It is very dated in terms of the technology that we see in it, but like it's gotten even more relevant for the digital age with social media and all that. Uh, like the ideas it delves into, social media has only made all this stuff worse.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're gonna get into the plot here in a second. I'll just say this is a movie about image and uh, celebrity image and celebrity culture and metamorphosis and. Pretending you're a one person when you're really not. And who are you really deep down? And do the fans know you? Do they just think they know you? Again, very relevant stuff. All wrapped in this hilariously dated 1997 movie where people, where there scenes like people saying, hey, look at this. This is the internet. Let me type on the internet, which always makes me laugh. (laughs) Please, can't you explain it in Japanese? (laughs) Dumb it down for me, (laughs) Doc. Okay. So anything else you want to say about the history of this movie or the legacy before we get into the the plot Um well uh I have read the
1: book that it was uh very loosely based on <laughs> um and I think I'll hold off on that I'll I'll reveal some details about that later uh but the other thing I would say going into this uh this movie is just look at the animation and also like just look at all the detail uh, that Satoshi Kohn puts into the world and the world building. Uh, he builds very intricate environments. Uh, there's a lot of stuff and people have to draw that stuff. It's not like you can't just, you know, shoot this on you know camera. You can't build a set. You've got to draw all this crap in all these environments every single time. Um, so it's, it's that attention to detail that, really tells you a bunch of little things about the characters that really uh, provides personality to them. And that uh, it just really makes it easy to understand really quickly, okay, this is who this person actually is when they're out of, you know, the, the sort of spotlight.
0: Yeah, this is most definitely not South Park where they're making little cardboard cutouts
1: no no it is very meticulously animated
0: yeah very meticulously animated very beautiful although it's only 82 minutes which shocked me when i realized that because it you it feels like a lot goes on in this movie but it's not in fact andrew and i were even talking right before this podcast and you didn't even realize it was only 80 minutes long no i didn't yeah so there's a lot going on it's all hand-drawn animation it's a uh it's quite an experience to go through it the first time. Although I would argue this is a movie you really need to watch at least twice. Like you need to, <laughs> yeah. Catch, yeah, you need to catch all the little setups and the details.
1: Yeah. I, I thought rewatching it. I'm like, ah, I've seen this movie plenty of times. I'm not going to get anything else out of it on this watch. No, I'm still getting new things out of it on each watch.
0: Yeah. It's really impressive. And again, I'm, I'm really glad you brought it to my attention. Again, I, I, I will fully admit I'm out of my comfort zone on this podcast. I'm going to do my best. I will probably lean on Andrew to kind of talk about the themes a little more than me. But before we do that, we have to talk about the title of this movie because I know it confuses <laughs> a lot of people. Now, I hear you laughing already. What the hell does Perfect Blue mean?
1: I have no clue. <laughs> The original novel was named Perfect Blue, so I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe there's something about it in there. But I, one, I read a translated version. Um, I'm looking for like every instance of when they use the term blue mm-hmm. in there. But I don't know like how much of it is translated correctly. How much of it <laughs> is like, okay, well, someone would just naturally use the the word blue here. It's really kind of ambiguous, and because it's, you know, the title of a movie that is based off of a book that it's only that it only loosely resembles, and I only have a translated version of that book, I genuinely have no clue what Perfect Blue <laughs> means.
0: <laughs> okay, I, I, I will admit, I know nothing about this. I only read this stuff on the internet this morning. I read one theory— that blue is actually a word for happiness in Japan. Like in America, it would be sadness, but in Japan, it means happiness. So this movie is basically saying perfect happiness, which is kind of a uh, subtle little critique on how t- tortured the heroine is. <laughs> I don't know if that's true. It's just one theory. I also read that at the end of the movie, when the heroine, you know, all is right in the world, and she looks up in the sky. It's like the first shot in the movie where there's no clouds. It's just a perfect blue sky. So it's like the, the, the light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps. I don't know. That's possible as well, but it's not where the original came from. <laughs> of course. And then there's the third theory that this is actually a movie about Smurfs. <laughs> Now, we don't know. Neither of us know why it's called Perfect Blue. We just know this is an effed-up little movie, and we are about to walk you through it. So, Andrew, are you all set for this one?
1: Oh, I'm all set.
0: Okay. I'll set you up, and I'll, you know, I'll turn on the the on-off switch and let you go here. So, this movie is about a young pop star named Mima, and she's got a last name, but I will never be able to pronounce it right. What, are you going to give it a try?
1: Oh, boy. I, I forgot through write down the names i needed to know yeah
0: it's like Kitagoe or something or Kitagoe.
1: oh uh, yeah Kitagoe it sounds right
0: yeah we'll just call her mima for our lack of japanese accents
1: mima or uh, also known as uh Rin. <laughs> uh rin is just like uh a, a cute little honorific uh that it, it's it, it makes the name cuter basically
0: yeah and that is one word to describe Mima. She's cute. She's uh, late teens, early 20s. I don't know exactly how old she is. She's the uh, basically the star singer in a trio of Japanese uh, singers named Cham. They're a little J-pop group. And kind of explain the start of this movie with uh, Mima and Cham.
1: All right. Well, uh, basically, Mima is having her last performance as a pop idol. And it's too like... A fairly small show. It's it's got a decent size, but it's not like a big thing. Uh and there's rumors about her, you know, starting to sort of uh to, to graduate from Cham. Um and as she's basically uh putting on this performance with everyone else, uh or with the other two girls in the band, the group, uh that it cuts back and forth between the performance that's going on while she's on stage and and then there are a ton of, like, match cuts from that to basically just her going about her day. Uh, just going about her normal day, going shopping, uh, you know, listening to music on the train ride home. Uh, this is also where, you know, you first see her standing by a window and her reflected in the window. You're going to see a lot of that throughout the movie. Um, but, like, it's it's just a lot of really quick match cuts that... Um, really emphasize how different, you know, it is when she's on stage, when she's in front of this crowd, uh, when she's, you know, presenting herself
0: as this big pop idol versus her just being a normal girl. Now, you may not know the answer to this since you don't really follow J-pop, but is this a traditional thing where the girls age out and they graduate from their groups? Um, I am... Not
1: entirely sure. Uh, I think that a lot of idols do eventually stop being idols Mm -hmm. uh, just because they're supposed to have sort of this youthful appearance, and you can only do that for so long.
0: Yeah, that's what I would think. You're only a J-pop idol until about 24 or 25, whether you like it or not. That's my guess.
1: Yeah. I'd say probably about 25, uh, just because there is a... Uh, A somewhat terrible term uh, in uh, uh, Japanese, like in in Japan, oftentimes uh, older women will be referred to as a Christmas cake uh, (laughs) because no one wants them after the 25th.
0: I have never heard that. Wow. That's so horrible.
1: (laughs) It's pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) Wow.
0: Wow, so this is the world we are living in, where that is literally a term in Japan that when women turn 25, they become Christmas cakes. Yep. Wow, thank you once again for introducing something into my lexicon. <laughs> okay, so so Mima is a pop star, you know, these bouncy young Japanese singers, and they make bubblegum pop, and everything's pure and innocent. And what's the word? Kawaii? Kawaii style? Is that kind of the... Kawaii, yeah, yeah that, that kind of feeds into this. It's like means cute. Mm-hmm. And so Mima wants to graduate, and she wants to become an actress. And we see a whole little subplot here. She's got an agent, that's uh, this man named Takadoro. He like runs the agency that she, that manages her. And then she's got a personal manager named Rumi, who is a former pop idol, kind of a middle aged Christmas cake of a woman. Yeah,
1: exactly. She had a career that didn't turn out super well, but now she's a manager.
0: Yeah, and Rumi and Takadoro will become very important to this movie because one of them, her uh the man, agent, Takadoro, wants Mima to graduate and become an actress, a serious dramatic actress, while her manager, Rumi, wants her to stay in pop and milk out this pop thing for as long as she can. So it will forever be a power struggle between over between those two over Mima's career. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of explain these scenes of uh them all kind of uh in the agency after the concert as they kind of debate mima's uh future although i should i love that mima just doesn't really say anything she just sits there and listens to her elders which is probably very accurate
1: Mm -hmm. yeah the the debate essentially boils down to you know the agents like no this is this is a good opportunity this gets her name out there uh you know cham is they're a fine group but they're not like You know a top group or anything And he's like hey you know let's follow The money we have this opportunity To get her into TV acting This is going to be good for her career And Rumi's like no no she can make it as a Pop idol Uh, You know this is something that's better For her anyway Um, And this is kind of Intercut in the middle Of the concert as well Uh, We're going to have to come back to the concert Because there's some important stuff that gets set up (laughs)
0: Okay, so you're talking about the stalker,
1: right? Yes, uh, Mamuro Uchida, or uh, as he's referred to, he he's pretty nameless throughout most of the movie, uh, but he's known uh, by his web handle Me Mania, uh basically a play off of Mima and Mania, and uh, he he's working security at this concert. Uh, he has like his eyes have sort of this glazed over look. He's he's not an attractive person. Uh if I have like one critique about the movie it's that uh it really portrays these uh these people who are super obsessed with this idol culture as it it really uh makes them look ugly and bad and like just terrible people. Um but there there's this one shot where you know he is Looking up at her on stage, and he sort of tilts his head and holds his hand up. Uh, so essentially, he has uh, Mima just sitting in the palm of his hand. Um, which is fantastic shot.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. That's the one thing about this movie as well. You get this one creepy stalker who's going to follow Mima through the whole movie. He's going to really intrude on her life. He's going to get very close to her, but he's almost portrayed as not human. He's almost too ugly to look at, which is not really the reality because the real dangerous talkers are the ones you don't see coming.
1: Mm-hmm. And he never speaks.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Mima leaves her final concert. She says goodbye to her fans and they're all like, "Ah, they love Mima. They, they don't want her to go away, but she's decided this is transition time. Now it's time to become a serious actress and as she's leaving her last concert, she has to go through like a big phalanx of fans and they're all giving her fan mail and stuff. She gets all these letters, but she gets one in particular that's going to become very important to the plot. And it's not really seen who gives it to her, but what is in this one specific uh, pink letter with a big heart on it?
1: Uh, well, it is basically a... Like a print off of a fan site uh, called Mima's Room, and he includes a link to that, because uh, you know back then you had to type out hyperlinks and <laughs> you uh, you couldn't just like click on them. No social media or phones or anything like that. Um, and she doesn't know what this whole internet thing is. Uh, she <laughs> so she's not sure. It's like what 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 is this Mima's Room? thing uh so that kind of catches her attention and uh she starts to look into it
0: yeah this move this scene in particular is going to date this movie for a lot of younger viewers but i love it because this is so typical of the early internet 1996 (laughs) 97 98 where mima's told to go on a website and she's like wow, what is the internet? And she has to look it up. And her manager, Rumi, will eventually have to come over and teach her how to type in a URL, what a URL is. So it's just, it's very simple, It's ve- but it's very typical for what the early internet looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. And she's like,
0: okay, well, you just double-click on this. She's like, double-clip? What does that mean? I will just pull up Netscape Navigator. We will look at the <laughs> internet. <laughs> Although, there's one scene here that makes me laugh, where mima has given her final concert she goes home she's going to be a serious actress now and her mom calls up to yell at her like why are you retiring you're a pop star i love the fact this movie is japanese it's dubbed in english and for some reason the mom has a southern american accent like she's from texas Uh,
1: does she I, i think i've
0: only seen it dubbed the one time oh so you've only you watch it subtitled yeah ah okay yeah, I've only seen the dub. The mom yeah, the mom was like, I do declare, Mima, you really still need to stop doing this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, the the dub versus sub debate is always weird. Dubs are fine for the most part, but dubs are also written in a way where uh they have to match the lip flaps. Mm. So it's it's kind of written a little more differently. Uh, it's not always a super accurate translation. And actually, uh, there is a fun little fact at the way end of the movie uh, that you're not going to catch if you watch the dub.
0: Ah, okay. Although I do have to ask, lip flap, is that the technical term? <laughs> that, that's the term that everyone
1: uses, at least. Uh, just the, the mouth animation when characters are
0: talking. Okay, so... So yeah, I've only seen the dubbed one. I really should watch the subtitled one. Now I'm very, I'm very curious what this detail is at the end. Well, I guess we'll get to that.
1: Oh yeah, it's going to be a big reveal.
0: Interesting. Okay.
1: Uh, but yeah, on, on the subject of the uh, the phone call and the like the tech in the, uh in, in the movie, uh, she gets at one point like this fax when she's at home. Like she thinks that her mom's calling back, but no, she's getting a fax. Uh, and it's printing off, and it just says "traitor" over and over again. Uh, it's from like a disgruntled fan because she has betrayed them by moving out of the pop scene. Uh, and there's just this absolutely fantastic transition uh, where the uh, like you can hear the fax printing machine making you know the the chugging sound, and then it transitions from that into like. The background of, you know, a a tense musical track, (laughs) Uh, basically like using the the fax printer as, you know, the the basis for that. It's just a fantastic musical transition. Uh, And uh, that is when we get our first real big uh, jarring cut of the movie, where she basically just says in response to that, who are you? And it cuts to her on set. At her uh, her gig, because Who Are You is the one line of dialogue that she has in this role that she's gotten.
0: Yeah, the, the transitions between scenes are so cool in this movie, and it's going to start getting into a fever pitch later where you don't know if you're dream- in a dream or in reality. It's going to get really jarring. Okay, let's talk about this, the acting scene. So Mima has been given a role on a TV drama. It's like a crime drama, kind of like CSI or something. I don't know. Yep. Double Bind. Double Bind. But she has the tiniest role possible, right? Yeah, she's the, the sister of some side
1: character, I think. Um, and it's just this one line, which is, who are you? Uh, or I think it's, excuse me, who are you in, in the dub? Yeah, it, it, again, expanded a little bit to, to match the
0: lip flaps. Okay, I didn't realize that. Yeah, Who Are You makes way more sense. And that will become very significant to this plot where Mima will not know who she is. And there's a little subplot here that I love also at the start where Mima's on set watching all these actors. And she says something. She says, wow, they're totally different people when the cameras are on. Which, again, is another it's really significant storyline in this movie.
1: So, uh, here is probably the best, uh, point to drop some interesting knowledge about the book. Okay. Uh, because the plot of the book actually more closely resembles the plot of the TV show that Mima is acting in than the movie itself. How so? Uh, so the plot of the, the series that she's in is essentially there is this, murderer who goes around killing women and he skins them so that he can take their skin because he wants to become them. Uh which very uh Buffalo Bill, is that the no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's the guy in Silence of Buffalo the Lambs. Buffalo Bill, yeah. right? Yeah. From
1: Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. Um hasn't necessarily aged fantastically as a plot point. <laughs> uh but the plot of the book is essentially a stalker uh doesn't like that she's going through like an impure image change uh so he wants to essentially steal her skin and uh portray her as like become her because he knows how to be you know good and pure and like for her Uh um and that's essentially (laughs) the plot of the uh the television series Double Bind. Uh, and a fun a, a fun fact about the lead actress in that, uh, Ari o- Ochai, Ochai, uh, yes, Ari Ochai, is that uh, she was actually a victim of that uh, serial killer in the original novel. She was originally like an idol who was very like very big on sex. Uh, but, of course, she had to do everything secretly because she can't ruin her image.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. I was reading some trivia on this, and it kind of ties into what you just said, that the book was about the killer. Now, for people who have not seen this movie, she's on a TV show about a killer, a serial killer who has multiple personalities, who's kind of a twist at the end who the real killer is. Her life will start to parallel that as well, where she will all of a sudden won't know if this is her real life or the TV show. But I read that the book is about the killer. It's from the killer's point of view. And the director, when he made this movie, said, well, that's not interesting. We've seen that before. We've seen Single White Female. We've seen Silence of the Lambs. He's like, I don't want to tell that story. I'll just make the movie from the point of view of Mima and what it's like to have a stalker after you to have your reality challenged. So he basically took the book and just changed the perspective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's, the movie is much better than the book. The book is pretty generic and straightforward, uh, and it does not have the fantastic twist that the uh, the movie does.
0: <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll get to that. Okay, so Mima's on set, she's acting in her first role, and again, we know she's making her fans mad. There's already people out there that are mad that she's not a pop star anymore, that she's going against uh, her image that she's now the fake Mima, that this was something that will come up in the movie quite a bit, the fake Mima versus the real Mima. And this is where the line starts to get crossed, where when she's at the studio one day, somebody gives her a fan letter, but she doesn't open it. Her agent opens it, and what happens? Uh, Well, the letter explodes. That's right. Mima's got her first letter bomb.
1: Yep. Uh, and it had like... The, you, you get to see, like, a portion of the letter, and it says, like, the next one will be real. uh. And she looks over when this happens, and she just so happens to see uh, me Mania, the stalker, standing in the background, again,
0: working security, apparently. <laughs> this guy must be a really highly regarded security agent. He gets so many security jobs. <laughs> well, he probably only takes certain security jobs,
1: uh, (laughs) ones that certain people work on.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. So, so Mima's life is starting to be a little bit threatened, although she isn't quite aware of it yet. She's a little too naive. I guess that would be one word to describe her kind of naive in this movie. Mm -hmm. Okay. But here we go. So here comes the plot is going to start advancing very quickly. She's going to go home and she's going to check out the internet because she wants to read this website, Mima's room. So, Explain Mima's Room to people. So
1: Mima's Room is a, a fan site. It is a blog, essentially, that uh, is from Mima's perspective. Uh, and it is written as if, you know, it's Mima just going about her day. And uh, she reads it off. It's like, you know, I, uh, I got off the train left foot first this morning uh you know it's a little habit of mine it's always going to be a good day when i do that uh and she laughs at that she's like wow they really know me uh and then she reads further and she's like you know i went shopping uh you know for fish food for my fish uh i bought cow brand milk uh which (laughs) i love uh just cow brand milk it's such a stupid generic (laughs)
0: Is that Super in the generic that, name? That's in the subtitled version too. Oh, is it not? <laughs> it is. I mean, it is in the dubbed. Is it also in the? Subtitled? Yeah, it, it's
1: in the subtitled version. That it's cow brand milk. Uh, it's like you know, only cow brand milk will do. And uh, that's the point where she starts getting creeped out because she's like, "Oh, this person uh, really knows me." Uh, and she starts to realize just how much her privacy is being invaded by this, uh, that she has a stalker.
0: Yeah, and we should really point out the timeline of this movie. There was a really big historical change and shift in celebrities versus fan interactions with the Internet, and this would be really hard to grasp if you grew up later, but in 1995, Mima would just be a pop star, would go home. They'd write gossip magazines about her, perhaps. But that was the that would be the extent of it. But in 96 and 97, now the internet starts becoming big, and fans can write fan sites about you and tribute sites to you, and they can start putting details like, hey, I know what the inside of her room looks like. I know where she shops. I know every little intimate detail of her life. This would have been really jarring in 1997 to a pop star. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so clearly someone is following her, and she was never aware of it, and she's going to be creeped out the rest of the movie because Mima's room is going to become increasingly more and more intricate and accurate in the little details of her thought process. Yeah, well, in
1: some ways, yes. Mm -hmm. In other ways, uh, no. In other (laughs) ways, it's going to very heavily take a departure from who Mima is, or rather who she's trying to be.
0: Yeah, it's, it's going to... Let me just put it this way. There's kind of a twist ending at the end of this movie. The author of Mima's room is going to start portraying themselves as the real Mima and Mima as the fake Mima. And uh, it's going to become a, turn to a head where the, the author of the website is going to start telling her fans to kill the fake Mima. It's going to get very dark here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so... In the process of all this, I'm going to kind of speed through a little section here where Mima is starting to feel a lot of pressure on her life. She's got this stalker website. She doesn't like it. Someone sent a letter bomb to the studio to try to kill her. Uh, Her former group, Cham, is actually becoming very popular without her. All of a sudden, now they're a duo. Now all of a sudden, they're having top 100 hits. And, like, everything is going well outside her life except for her life. Right now, she's stuck in this career where she gets one line in a TV show, and that's it. And it's really starting to build on her that she has a lot of pressure. This is her one make or break thing. She has to become good as an actress.
1: Yeah, uh, and so uh, around this time, like her agent is talking with the director. He's like, "Hey, uh, can can you get her a bigger role? Can you you know do more with this?" And the director's like, "Well, you, you got to understand, it's hard to get a recurring character on here, but uh, you know what?" I actually have an idea, a pretty devilish idea, and this is going to lead to Mima getting a bigger role, uh, starting with the first rape scene.
0: Okay, yeah, let's talk about this, because I don't want to scare people off by saying, oh yeah, this is the rape scene. It's There's a purpose for this scene in the movie, is that they've written this script in this episode, and they want this girl to... She works in a strip club and a nightclub, which is already dicey for Mima. She should not be doing strip club roles. It's really, Mm -hmm. the pop fans are not going to accept that. In the script, she's going to be attacked by a bunch of people in a nightclub. She's going to be raped. And the rape is going to trigger her into some kind of multiple personality disorder. It's so traumatic. She's going to become two personalities. One, the real one. And the other one's going to become a killer. She's going to start killing people very Silence of the Lambsy stuff, stuff like that. So they've written this script into her TV show, and they say, we want Mima to have this really meaty role where she gets to do all this adult stuff. She gets to become a killer. She gets to become, you know, just, we'll see her naked. It's just all the stuff that you wouldn't expect from Mima. And her agent, the old guy, loves it. He's like, yes, this is exactly what Mima should be doing. This is how she'll become an actress. But her manager, Rumi, the former pop idol, Says absolutely not. There's no way, no way in hell, Mima should be doing this role, and that's where the dichotomy comes in.
1: Mm-hmm. And then uh, Mima herself is like, "No, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. If this is what it takes to, you know, get into acting, uh, I'll do that." And she does it with like a smile on her face. Um, and then, like, do, do we want to talk about the scene itself now?
0: Uh, we'll get to that in a second because there's one scene before it that I think is more important. So the scene itself is coming up Mima has agreed to do this really really horrific gang rape scene in a show again all simulated on it's just a TV show but it's a big step for her but this is where she starts to have a little break from reality where she starts seeing an alternate version of herself in the mirrors
1: Yes uh, and this is the version of herself in the outfit that she's wearing at the beginning of the movie like a very white with, like, pink lace, uh, very, you know, pure, angelic pop
0: idol image. I love fake... We'll just... Okay, I won't call her fake. We will call her Pop Mima. I love Pop Mima in this movie. She's giggly, and she's pink, and she's got this really distinct bounce where she bounces on one leg all over the place, and she's so happy. hmm But she's twisted as all hell. And she's the... She's the alternate version of Mima, and she will start, Mima will start seeing this alternate version of herself in windows, in mirrors, just on the street, and I just love how creepy this pop Mima is. Okay, and so with that, we're going to go into the actual, the rape scene, the simulated TV scene where Mima has to do her first adult scene ever in a uh, TV show or anywhere, really, and... This one is really, you said it earlier, this is a tough one to watch. Even though it's 100% simulated, the other actors even apologized to her saying, you know, we're sorry we have to do this. And he was like, oh, that's fine. This is just what I have to do. But this one is rough to watch.
1: Yeah. Uh, And uh, fun little detail, or maybe not so fun uh, little detail, is that the outfit that she's wearing is surprisingly similar to the uh, the outfit that she wears at the beginning the one that Pop Mima wears. Uh, it's you know similarly it's kind of uh it's it's a white dress with like pink frills and it, it's kind of a sexier version of it but it's still very similar to the pop outfit.
0: Yeah, so it's very symbolic. she is destroying mm-hmm. her pop image forever that, that's what she's doing deliberately here.
1: Yeah, uh, but it's, you know, one of the, the more uncomfortable parts is when, like, in in the middle of the scene, you just hear, all right, cut, hold position, uh, and, like, the, the guy starts, who's on top of her, starts to get up, and the director's like, hey, hey, no, uh, we're changing camera angles, we need you in the same position, get back down in that position, so he's trying to distance himself from it, but he's being told, no, get back on her, maintain the scene, And that's when he whispers, look, I'm really sorry about this. And she's like, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. We're acting.
0: And I should point out there's a historical precedent for this, that this is not unheard of for young actresses to grow up and want to be taken more seriously. And they really – the fans will never take them seriously as an adult. They always think of them as a kid. So this is not unprecedented for an actress to want to do this. One uh, historical precedent is Jodie Foster in The Accused. Are you familiar with that movie? I am not. Yeah, Jodie Foster, one of the biggest Disney actresses, child stars of the 70s, early 80s. She grows up. She wants to be seen as an actress, but nobody takes her seriously because she's like five feet tall. She still looks like she's about 14. So she's specifically in a movie called The Accused, which has one of the most graphic rape scenes ever in a movie. And it's all about her going to trial, going up against her accusers, the women standing up against the men in court. It's a really gripping movie. I think it was nominated for some awards. I believe she won. But to this day, that's why she was taken seriously as an actress and not a child star. So this is not historically inaccurate. This is what some actresses have to do to get people to take them seriously as grownups.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, look at more recent examples of Britney Spears mm-hmm. and Miley Cyrus, you mm-hmm. know, these You know, pop idols and actresses who had this sort of squeaky clean Disney, uh, you know, uh, persona that both, you know, went into a very heavily sexualized persona, uh, almost in a way to get away from that perception of them, Uh, the perception of them being like these sweet, adorable, wholesome kids, uh, because that's not what they are anymore. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, not to say that Mima is not that, but she really wants to become a serious actress. So we're saying even though this movie is kind of horrific in some of these storylines and plots, this is the reality for a lot of young actresses. This is kind of the stuff they have to do. So just keep that in mind if you're watching this movie. And that's, it's one thing in kind of a modern movie. They don't want you to be uncomfortable in movies. They don't like that. But Perfect Blue, this is very uh, much based in reality. This is the way the industry kind of works.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then, like, after that scene, like, once they've got the shot and everything, uh, you know, she gets in the car with her manager and he, well, as they're watching the scene, like, her manager, T- Tadakoro, and, you know, her agent, or no, her, Tadakoro's the agent, Rumi's the manager, yes? Yeah,
0: I get those backwards all the time. So use them interchangeably, that's fine.
1: Anyway, they're watching the scene as it's being taped and they're both like, oh boy, this is... This is not pleasant. Maybe we shouldn't have done this. Uh, Rumi starts crying and just walks out of the room. Uh, afterwards, she gets in the uh, the car with Tadakoro, and uh, he's like, "Hey, listen, Mima," and she just gives him this smile and she's like, hmm? "What? What's up?" Uh, and he's like, uh, "Never mind. I'll I'll buy you a big meal for this." And she's like, "Yeah. All right. Sweet. Lucky me. Just very happy. Very polite." Um, then she gets home, she starts to feed her fish, she sees that all her fish are dead, uh, which is not something that is actually happening, it's just in her mind that this is going on, uh, but, like, that's the last straw for her, and she just... Completely breaks down. She starts trashing her room, throwing stuff everywhere, just screaming, Of course I didn't want to do it. Of course I didn't want to do this. But how could I let everyone else down? And it's just such a heartbreaking scene because throughout the whole thing, you haven't seen just how much pain it's caused her. And then you get to see her alone when she's not on the stage, when she's not in that persona, when she's not performing for people anymore. And she just completely breaks.
0: Yeah, it's tough to watch because you really do like Mima in this movie. She's a very nice person, very accommodating, wants to make people happy. And you really see here at this part of the movie, she starts to have what would really be, I guess they describe later in the movie as a disassociative break from reality, where she starts to uh, split into two versions of Mima. And it really, it actually starts at the very end of the rape scene. I kind of forgot about this, where... They're filming it, and it's horrific. And at the end of the scene, she looks up, and everyone's applauding. They're like, what courage you had for doing that scene? And so they're all applauding and cheering. And she kind of flashes back in her mind to when she was in Cham, and all the fans would cheer her and and root for her at the end of the scene. And it's Mm -hmm. kind of, she's already starting to get reality and her former persona mixed up, like which one is actual reality. And this is where she goes home, she sees her fish dead, she has her breakdown. And this is where Pop Mima shows up to start taunting her again.
1: Mm Hmm. yeah and this is uh right around this point is where the movie really starts to get disconnected
0: from reality and it gets a little harder to track what's going on yeah i was gonna say we're gonna have a hard time going through the details of this movie because it's literally gonna jump between dream and reality several times within the same scene and they're really gonna set you up with a couple of fake endings and a fake storylines so i'm gonna try my best not to confuse you and we'll kind of save the twist for the end. You think that's fair, Andrew?
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's it's really difficult because like the movie starts straight up lying to you at this point. Uh there are like several different characters whose uh, grasp on reality may not be fully there. <laughs> uh but it is um like you start getting just these really abrupt cuts and well they follow the previous scene thematically Uh, they are completely different locations, completely different scenarios, uh, and it makes it really hard sometimes to realize that you've even transitioned from one scene to another for a few seconds.
0: Yeah, like I said at the start, I don't think I've ever seen a movie where there's more instances of something horrible happens and then Mima wakes up and says, oh, it was just a dream. And then you learn, wait, maybe it wasn't a dream. Maybe this was part of the TV show. Oh, no, this was reality. So it's going to ping pong all over the place. And that's why we both said you kind of have to watch it twice to really catch how they're doing it because the transitions are actually quite brilliant. But you have to know what's going on first. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we'll skim through this. So this pop idol version of Mima keeps appearing to her like a ghost. Ha ha. Told you you shouldn't have become an actress. Look what you did to yourself. You're dead now. Ha 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 ha. And she always, again, bounces away on the one leg, which is such a creepy image. I just Mm -hmm. love that image.
1: Yeah, and she's, like, light as air. She's, like, she'll be hopping on street lamps and everything. Uh, you'll see later she, she'll she bounce alongside a car at, like, going at full speed.
0: And that's one of the things you couldn't do in live action, which I guess is one of the benefits of, of anime. You can do that in animation. You cannot have a live actor bouncing around on screen on the top of lampposts.
1: Uh,
0: I think one thing that
1: starts happening pretty shortly after uh, the, the rape scene... Is that in interviews and whatnot, she starts outright saying, oh, yeah, I I want to be known as Mima the actress. I don't want to be known as like Mima, the former pop idol. Uh, She starts changing how she dresses. Like if you look, she starts dressing a lot more maturely, um, just completely changing her wardrobe. So she's going through like a full image change around this time as well.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, they're saying her career is starting to take off. The ratings on the TV show are getting better and better. So her acting career is really starting to blossom. Like, there's no chance she's going to go back to being a pop star now. But this is where, like you said, the tone of Mima's Room, remember her stalker website, is going to start changing.
1: hmm
0: <laughs> so, so how does it change? How does it get a little more dark here?
1: Yeah. Uh, Mima's Room is starting to have messages like, oh, yeah, the, the director – forced me into this rape scene uh you know he's he's the one responsible you know if he were out if it weren't for him i would still have this shiny pure image uh you know he's a bad guy help me help me help me etc um mima the tone of mima's room starts to get more unhinged and then uh we cut to the director in this car garage (laughs) uh you hear Music blurring out of nowhere, uh, the same song that they were singing in the beginning. Uh, and it gets louder and uh, the elevator opens up and there's just this boom box in there blaring the music out. And then it cuts. You see the elevator doors shut. And um, when they open up again, uh, the director is inside the elevator with the uh, with the boom box but his uh, eyes have been
0: stabbed out
1: and he has been murdered.
0: Okay. Yeah. Let me put this into perspective for you. So Mima's room website, which again, every Mima fan in the world reads is now purportedly coming from Mima herself. Starts saying things like, help me, help me. They have me trapped as an actress, please save me. And it culminates in the director of the TV show, having his eyes cut out. So Mima's website is basically calling for a jihad at this point saying, please kill everyone who's trapped me as an actress. Please, I need you. I'm desperate. And Mima is freaked out because she's like, I didn't write this. This isn't coming from me. And again, this is one of the breaks with reality from fans, reality TV, all the social media, that there could be stuff out there that's purportedly from the person, but it's not. But a lot of fans will believe it as gospel, and it's very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Although, we should also point out, this is where... Pop Mima really starts to turn in the screws to real Mima, where she shows up as a, in a dream again. And this is the start of stuff. She's like, of course you didn't write the website. The real Mima wrote it. You're not the real Mima anymore. And Mima's like, of course I'm the real Mima. And, and this ghost, the pop star, is like, No. You're a has-been. You're a filthy woman now. You're a slut. You do rape scenes. You do topless scenes. You're filthy. You're dirty. You'll never be able to live in the spotlight now. Giggle, giggle, giggle. Your image is tarnished. So it's really the taunting really begins here.
1: And uh, her image is about to be even more tarnished because, uh, like, you hear some of her former fans discussing that she is going to do a – A shoot with a photographer who usually does some pretty
0: racy stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. We we do get a lot of cartoon boob here. I kind of forgot about how much nudity is in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of nudity. (laughs) So Mima does this uh, somewhat, it's a tasteful, topless photo shoot, as you would see in a lot of magazines. A lot of actresses would do at this stage in their life and Yeah, Mima's fans are not going to have this. And Mima's room is not going to have this. And the stalker is not going to have this. It's all hell is going to break loose from here on out. You you see
1: mima the stalker, like he is just going into essentially every store he can, buying every copy of the the, uh, magazine so that no one else can read it. Uh, No one can see her tarnished image. Uh, He has to preserve it. He has to protect her.
0: Yeah, because that is his role. I am your protector. Although, I guess we forgot to mention that the stalker guy, Mimania, is emailing with with Mima at this point. Someone he thinks is Mima anyway.
1: Yes, he is not writing Mima's room. I think that's confirmed. uh, But he is in communication with whoever it is who is writing it.
0: Yeah, so he thinks he has a close personal relationship with Mima. And again mima has nothing to do with this website all she wants to do is be, a, be an actress and get away from the pop world but this stalker website is following her someone is emailing people in her name pretending to be her saying help me protect me so all hell is i mean it's just a big shitstorm is coming for poor mima who is essentially going to have a nervous breakdown for the last 30 minutes of this movie
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i think this is where we get uh The ghost Mima starts singing with Cham. All of a sudden, they're a trio again, and Mima can see it. And it's like, oh my god, what's happening? And Mima, like, tries to kill herself in a bathtub the first time.
1: I I don't think she's trying to kill herself. I think she's just, like, frustrated and broken down. Um, I I don't think she's trying to drown herself. But yeah, this is the bathtub scene that uh, Requiem for a Dream lifted shot for shot.
0: And the director even admits that that's not even an implication. He's like, "Yeah, I just stole that from Perfect Blue."
1: Yeah, and there was like for a while there was um, uh, there there was you know a thing going around that uh, Aronofsky had you know gotten the rights to Perfect Blue in order to make that, but it's come out more recently that no, he he just lifted it uh, (laughs) like he didn't pay for it or anything. uh, So. Fans have turned a little bit on Aronofsky because of that.
0: (laughs) Okay, so poor Mima is in trouble because this stalker is being told, please protect me. There's a fake Mima out there trying to pretend she's me. Please protect me. Kill anybody who gets in the way. So it's going to get really violent here. And uh, this is where – all right, I'm going to be real careful here. (laughs) This is where we start jumping into the jumps between reality and fiction where – it's especially notable in a scene where Mima is talking to a therapist for the first time.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, which one is that?
0: This is the one, the first one, when uh, the the therapist is saying, well, how do you know this is that you're the real person? Like, How do you know that the person you are right now is the same person you were two seconds ago? We can have more than one personality. And Mima's like, really? I don't think that's true. And I'm like, that's something a shitty doctor would say. <laughs> but, then, but then but then, there's the line, and this gets a, a repeated many times to the last end of this movie, where the doctor says, well, don't worry. Even if there's a fake version of you, it's just an illusion, and there's no way illusions can come to reality.
1: Yeah, dreams cannot become reality. Uh, and then I believe it's revealed that this is actually not Mima talking to a therapist, but Mima's character on set uh, acting out a scene.
0: Yeah, again, it's going to get really confusing. All you have to know is almost every scene from here on out to the end of the movie is you think it's Mima in reality, but it's actually Mima on the TV show and every time you think it's her on the TV show, it's actually her in reality. And she has no idea. She has she has fuck all any idea of what the hell's going on. Her head is just spinning. She doesn't even know who she is. All she knows, there's fake versions of her out there. There's a ghost version of her singing. Like, at one point, there's a chase where she has to chase the ghost version of herself out into the street.
1: Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that we also get, like, a scene of Rumi visiting her but it's played like three times in a row.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's really going to mess with your head. Rumi comes to visit this Rumi, her idol, her, uh, her manager, former pop idol, her mentor comes and visits her, says, what's wrong, Mima. And Mima's like, well, you know that I keep seeing fake versions of herself. And Rumi says, well, you know, it's just an illusion. An illusion can't become reality. And now we start popping back and forth into the same scene again from a different perspective. Yeah. It's, this is a crazy stretch. Rumi, it's been a while since I've seen you. What? No, I was here yesterday.
1: Uh, Like, she breaks the teacup that she's holding because, like, her hands are shaking so much. And as, like, her hands are dripping, she's like, this is my blood,
0: isn't it? I'm I'm real, right? I'm real. Mima starts to question if she herself is even real. And this is a big question, and I think uh, Mima says... I think I've buried this other former version of myself somewhere deep inside me. I've killed it. And now I've given myself disassociative personality disorder or multiple personality disorder. So that's really the subplot towards the end of the movie. Does she have multiple personality disorder or not?
1: Mm -hmm. And, uh, and going back to Mima's room a little bit, uh, you, we, like we get a scene where she's reading Mima's room with just like this absolutely blank expression. And like, looking at a picture of her at this uh, like at this clothing store or whatnot. And and she goes, oh, I guess I went shopping today. Uh, Basically like buying into what the like buying into the Mima on Mima's room actually being her.
0: Yeah. So this is the difficult part to try to parse out this movie. Who is the real Mima? And who is the imposter? Just like, I'm sure you're wondering, listening to this podcast, who is the actual host of Staff Picks? Is it me or Andrew? I'm sure we've baffled you by this point. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so here comes the second murder. So we already had the scriptwriter die, and now one night Mima dreams that the director dies, and it turns out the director really does die in real life in one of the most graphic murder scenes I think I've ever featured on Staff Picks.
1: Yeah, it is, like you see the the photographer uh come to the door essentially like this pizza person shows up he's like uh oh i I don't know if i ordered it okay whatever you know you're you're a really weird quiet pizza delivery boy but whatever and he bends down to pick something up and then they just jam this uh like what, what what's the tool's name
0: it's either a knife or an ice pick i can't tell
1: yeah, it'd be like an ice pick. It's just like this wooden handle with a spike on the end of it, just straight into his eye, and starts, you know, jabbing him over and over, uh, just gruesomely murdering him. Uh, with the pictures of like Mima in that state of undress projected behind him, uh, and you know, as as she's stabbing down, like the the hat comes off, and you can see that it's Mima doing it, just stabbing him over and over and she wakes
0: up and the press is at her door. Yeah. So now comes the part of the movie where Mima is a suspect in a pair of murders. First, we had the script writer. The second guy, I forget. Is that the director or the photographer? I forget. Uh, First was
1: the writer. Then was the photographer.
0: Okay. Yeah. So we have two murders and Mima was actually seen at the scene of the crime. I think Mima wakes up and she has bloodstained clothing in her room She's like, oh, my God, am I killing people? And yet, like you said, the paparazzi is all after her now. Now she's literally a suspect in two murders.
1: Yeah, I'm not like a hard suspect, but everyone's buzzing around on set. It's like, oh, well, you know, what happens two times is going to happen three times. Let's take bets on who's next.
0: And really, Mima only has one friend in the world right now. She has her mentor, manager, Rumi, who's basically an older version of her. So Mima goes running to Rumi and says, What's happening, Rumi? I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's truth and reality anymore. And I think the exact quote is, Am I even alive, Rumi? Is this really happening? She had a dream earlier in the movie where a truck hit her. And she's like, Did that truck actually hit me? Am I dead now? Maybe all this is a bad dream. I just can't make out the difference anymore. And so, of course, Rumi pats her on the back and says, it's all okay. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. But (laughs) now it gets even more complicated because Mima has to film a murder scene in the TV show, which is literally the exact same murder that just happened to the photographer. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Uh, I I will have to say, though, that, like, I I do
1: have to say that it is good, at least, that – in all this that she's going through,
0: at least Mima has Rumi to keep her grounded. That's really all you need. <laughs> you need the one older voice of reason who will keep you sane through your, uh, through your mental illness and will not gaslight you in the slightest.
1: Yeah. You c- you can trust Rumi at least to make sure she's looking out for your best interests.
0: Okay. Yeah. So here's the murder scene where, Mima has to film a scene where she kills a guy with an ice pick in the eye, which is exactly what happened last night, which I I really think the actors union would have a problem with her making, making her do the scene the next day. (laughs) Yeah. But in the scene, we even see Mima talking to a doctor and the doctor says, who are you Mima? Are you an actress or an idol? And Mima's like, I don't know anymore. I don't even know who I am. And then we find out this is actually a scene in the TV show. And then it's a scene with a real doctor. Like, what the hell is going on in this timeline? Yeah,
1: no, it's uh, with the the scene that we see is basically uh, she's like, "Who who are you? Uh, oh, I'm I'm Mima. I'm an actress." And you see, you know, the doctor go into the other room, start talking with someone. It's like, okay, well, you know, she she's a former pop idol who thinks that she's uh, you know, an an actress. She she's created this fake persona to protect herself from the murders that she's done and then you see it stop and it rewinds and we see the scene again and that's when you realize no this movie has just flat out lied to you <laughs> the scene was actually her in character being like oh no I'm, I'm a model oh yeah she's this former you know actress who thinks that she's a model now she's taken on her sister's identity that's the plot of the show
0: yeah, if you've seen the movie Black Swan, it rips off this storyline so hard here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Again, that hack fraud Darren Aronofsky.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I love that this is literally the plot of the TV show. Oh, she's this girl named Yoko, and she got attacked and raped in a strip club. And because of the trauma from the rape, she formed this, formed this uh, alternative personality called Mima the Pop Star. So they've literally written this into the TV show, which is totally messing with this poor girl's head. She has no idea who she is anymore. Yeah, and then we hear, all right, cut. That's a wrap. That's, uh, that's a
1: wrap. Double Bind is officially in the can. Yes. And uh, I think she's walking out after that, and she's really not sure who she is at some point. Uh, and she refers to uh Eri Ochai, the, uh, like the lead actress, by her character's name. And she's like, Oh, the, the, did, did you forget? No, I'm I'm airy. I'm not my character. Remember, dreams cannot become reality. And then I think she says something along the lines of like, don't worry, you'll stop dreaming soon.
0: <laughs> you know what the funny thing about this movie is? That the first time you watch it, you have no idea what's going on. The second time you watch it, you realize the plot is actually really straightforward.
1: <laughs> there's, yeah. yeah.
0: There's actually not too many twists and turns. It's really straightforward. We'll get to that at the end. But let's go how the movie presents it here, Uh, because now we're going to get the final attack. Mima has finished her role. She raps. She goes down to the dressing room. And this is where she is finally attacked by the fan, her stalker, Mamania, who thinks he is killing an imposter to protect the real Mima. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, in his assault, you hear him speak for the first time. And it is just the whiniest, most obnoxious least threatening high-pitched voice ever
0: wait are you are you daring to tell me that reality tv stalkers are whiny and annoying how dare you
1: (laughs) what i I would never imply such a thing
0: (laughs) yeah so he uh corners mima down in the basement why there's no security i don't know but he finally gets a hold of her no
1: it's it's on set it's on set at the strip club
0: where the uh the fake rape was uh was staged. Oh, that's okay. He's going to kill Mima for daring to film a rape scene that kills the purity of original Mima. He's going to do it on the exact same stage where she filmed it. And he means business. Like this is a brutal attack when he tries to kill her.
1: Yeah. And he like, he's trying to rape her himself at this time.
0: Yeah. Which, which you said surprisingly is actually less difficult to watch than the filmed one. Cause I think they kind of gloss over this one. They know they know we don't need two scenes of Mima being simulated raped twice in one movie. So they really kind of gloss over this one a little bit.
1: Yeah. Uh and like during the attack, like Mima, I think she gets stabbed a few times. Mm-hmm. Uh nothing mortal though. Uh but then like when he's attempting to rape her, like he's got her legs tied up with his belt, uh, and she manages to grab a a hammer from like a tool belt that's been left behind. And just smash him in the head and knock him out, knock him unconscious and escape.
0: It's funny. That's the one scene in the movie where someone gets hit with an object and not killed. But it's surprisingly the most difficult to watch. Like he gets hit in the head with a hammer and the hammer just sticks in his head for a second and his eyes kind of scramble and then he falls over. It's really kind of disturbing the way it's shown.
1: Yeah, he's, like, staggering around and screaming and then just collapsing.
0: Yeah. So she's literally attacked by this guy. She fights him off with a hammer, and she looks up, and all of a sudden the director and all the crew is there, and they're like, Good job. You filmed the scene well. Nice work. That's a wrap. And she's like, Wait a minute. Where is this? And you have no idea if this is a dream <laughs> or not.
1: No. Uh, and then you see her in the – you see her, like, staggering through the hall after uh, just – her shirt completely torn open, uh, her, I think like her arm or shoulder bleeding or something. uh, And this is when Rumi finds her good old reliable Rumi, uh, who is going to come take care of her, uh, take her home now.
0: That's right. Thank God the den mother figure there, the mentor Rumi is going to take care of of Mima, make it all better. And we're going to go home back to Mima's room. But first, but first, Mima has to show
1: Rumi, like, what happened. You know, she was just assaulted by this guy. So she goes back to the scene, like, the where she was attacked, and he's just missing.
0: Yeah, there's no body.
1: Yeah, and uh, then she calls the manager who ha- had just been telling Rumi, oh, so, uh, you know, we've got a another role lined up for Mima already, now that she's done with this it's a little racy in some places but you know what can you do uh so it's clear that he's going to keep pushing her with racier roles uh and Mima tries to call her uh her manager uh, uh, you know Tadakoro and doesn't get a response and Rumi's like it's okay you know we'll we'll take you back to to Mima's room now <laughs> and this is where you see that uh Me Mania and Tadakoro have themselves both been murdered. That's right.
0: Both with their eyes cut out as in the signature of the murderer in this movie. Mm Mm-hmm. So now we are going to get to the big twist ending, and I I guess I forgot to mention at the start of this podcast, this movie has a huge twist at the end. Although I am curious if anybody ever figures out this twist by the end of the movie. (laughs) I personally think this movie is so confusing and so you know, uh, me, not mean spirited, blatant with its misuse of reality versus truth. (laughs) I cannot imagine anybody would have picked out this ending, but it does make perfect sense when you actually know what you're watching.
1: Yeah. On a rewatch it, there's a lot. You're like, oh, okay. I, I get what's going on. But on an initial watch, it really does a good job of misdirecting and making it seem like me mania is behind everything.
0: Yeah. So it turns out the stalker who's been following her this whole movie had nothing to do with anything. He was really just some tool that uh, Mima's real stalker was using to try to kill her and get her out of the way so the real Mima could take her place and become Mima. And again, here we go with the black swan ending, the single white female ending. You've seen it in lots of other movies before. This is one of the best instances I've ever seen of it in a movie. But again, it only really will make sense to you the second time so here we go, Andrew. Let's go to the twist ending of this movie. Yes, Mima wakes up and she is in
1: her room. Well, no, that's not entirely true. Uh, she is in Mima's room, which looks very similar to her own, but is a different place. Uh, and she is looking for Rumi, who has taken her here. And Rumi comes out in Mima's old pop idol outfit and you see in the mirror beside her pop mima
0: yeah this is uh really interesting and again it's something that only really i think could have been done in an anime movie i don't know if you could do this with a live action actress where when mima is looking at her mentor rumi all she sees is pop mima which is the evil version of mima but in every mirror image off to the side you can see it's just rumi in a wig and Rumi is older and heavier. She's a uh, sort of a Christmas cake, I guess one would say. <laughs> yeah. She clearly doesn't look like Mima, but to Mima, she looks exactly like her. And this is really just signifying how nuts in the head Mima has been driven throughout the course of this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. And she's like, uh, no, stop this. What are you doing, Rumi? You're scaring me. And you see Rumi have like this moment of cognitive dis- dissonance where she's like, Rumi? Rumi. Oh, Rumi went home, uh, like just editing Rumi out of, you know, her reality where, you know, she has become Mima. Uh, and this is where uh, Rumi takes it upon herself to uh, kill the spare.
0: Yeah. So this movie is a movie about disassociative personality disorder, multiple personalities, whatever you want to call it. It's just not Mima who has it. And that's kind of the cool little twist. Her manager, Rumi, has had this all along, that she's been reliving her pop career through the younger Mima. And she absolutely cannot handle that Mima has given up the pop career, given up the career that she herself was not able to have. And Rumi has somehow snapped, thinks that she's Mima, and she's going to kill the real Mima now. So now we get a really vicious knife battle at the end between these two women.
1: Mm-hmm. The the big chase scene where you see like you see, uh you know, Mima being chased by this pop Mima who is just floating across all these fire escapes and everything, just not breaking a sweat, just this perfect airy image of a pop idol. And then every now and then uh, you see her run past a window and. And you can just see Rumi running as fast as she can, completely out of breath, just straining.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's really well done. And again, the first time you watch it, you'll kind of get what's going on. But the second time, it will really click home. But there's some great Rumi quotes here at the end where, again, this movie metamorphosis, perception, uh, image versus reality. Who's the fake one? Who's the real one? And Rumi says, I'm a pop idol. And a pop idol has to sing. But you're fake, Mima, and you keep getting in my way. You know, Rumi was furious, too. Then she has another line here. Pop idols are always protected by their fans. They'll do anything their idol says. And, you know, Mr. Memania failed a little bit, though. So I guess I have to do it for him instead, which is a fun little critique on these, you know, gullible idiot fans doing anything a celebrity says. Oh, do this. Oh, you know put this hemp oil, wear this, oh, this uh, essential oil. So it's, it's a really interesting critique on celebrities says and fans do. And it's a really, it's not veiled at all here.
1: Yeah. Uh, and then like this, this harrowing chase ends with uh, like, this window ends up getting broken uh, and Mima is grappling with Rumi and she grabs the wig that Rumi is wearing off of her. Um, and you can see, uh, like, it at one point in the fight, like, Mima is trying to hold Rumi off by just strangling her, like, trying to keep her from stabbing her. And you can see, like, Mima's, like, the, the fake Mima's face just morph into Rumi's. Uh, but when she pulls the wig off, like, Rumi reverts back to herself for a bit, mm-hmm. uh, goes chasing it, which is uh, through the broken window... Leans down,
0: (laughs) impales herself on a shard of glass. Yeah, I was going to say, I love how much of the final fight takes place in front of a mirror, which is so fitting. And then Rumi accidentally impales herself on a broken mirror, which is, again, just so thematic.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Manages to grab the the wig, staggers back, like, in extreme pain. Uh, She's still drawn as Rumi at this point. Uh, Staggers out into the street, puts the wig on, turns around, and she's Mima again. And you get just an absolutely iconic shot of, like, a Mima, or this this fake pop Mima with blood running down her face, uh, just giving this chilling smile. Uh, and then the truck comes for her, and she stands up and spreads her arms as if it's the spotlight, as if it's millions of cheering fans.
0: I'm so glad you brought up that shot. So that is an iconic shot because that's the shot that jumps out at me as well.
1: Mm -hmm. It is. It is one of the most well-known shots from the movie.
0: Yeah, this is so cool. So you have fake Mima out in the street and she's been, you know, she's been stabbed in the chest. She's about to die. She's bleeding to death and she knows the gig is up. It's all over. And she she sees a truck coming for her. And if you've never seen it before, it's just so cool. She just has this angelic smile on her face and spreads her arms and it looks—you see the headlights coming directly at her. It's going to plow into her, like her one last moment in front of all the J-pop fans. They're all cheering for her, and they, I think they probably insert some sound effect of cheering if I don't forget that. Yeah. It's really cool. And and Rumi is about to die, but the good-hearted Mima will not let her die, and she saves her.
1: Yep, plows her out of the way. Uh, the The people get to save them. They or the people running the truck save them. They call an ambulance. They get them help. And then we cut to the final scene, the epilogue, where Rumi is in a mental hospital, (laughs) and Mima, now an established actress, is visiting her again and bringing flowers.
0: Yeah, so Rumi is destined to live out her her life in the mental hospital, and the doctors even say... She still thinks she's a pop star. It's the saddest thing. She just walks around all day. Sometimes she thinks she's Mima, sometimes she doesn't. Like we just don't know if she'll ever get better. And you see it from Mima's point of view outside who her life is all turned around and everything has worked out well and she's a serious actress and you're very happy. And on the way out, Mima's leaving the hospital and there's two doctors or two nurses there who see her and say, Oh, that cat that can't be the real Mima. That's just an imposter. Why would Mima come to some no but no name mental hospital?
1: Yep. And this is where we get the final shot of the film, where Mima gets in her vehicle, uh, looks like pulls down her sunglasses, looks in the rearview rear view mirror, and we see her say through the mirror, no, I'm real. And this is where I'm going to drop a little bit of fun information on you about the difference between the dub and the original Japanese track. I'm dying to hear
0: this. I'm dying to hear this. What is this? The
1: final line delivered, No, I'm real, said again, Into the Mirror, is delivered by Rumi's voice actress.
0: <laughs> wow, that changes things significantly. It does. <laughs> so. So this movie in the English dub is this super happy movie at the end. Like, it's twisted, and it's a, you know, psychological thriller. But it really has the happiest of endings possible. But in the original Japanese dub, it's a lot more uh, open-ended.
1: Yeah, much more open-ended. Because, again, she said it to the mirror. We didn't see her. We
0: saw the reflection. What does it mean? (laughs) So they're implying that maybe the real Mima is in the mental hospital, and this is Rumi now. They're implying it.
1: I don't read it that way personally, but it's open-ended enough that it's it's designed to make you think and make you wonder.
0: Well, yeah, because I was thinking most psychological twist thrillers like this usually end with an ambiguous ending. That's tend to be what they do. So I'm a little surprised when I watched the English dub that it's not ambiguous at all. It's so clear cut and happy because that's not what normally happens. So that Japanese ending makes way more sense for the tone of this movie.
1: Yeah, and it's it's kind of hard to tell that it's Rumi's voice actress instead of Mima's, but it's it's there and it's been well documented that yeah, it's for the last line they had Rumi's voice actress say it.
0: Wow, yeah, that really does change the viewing just one little detail like that. Wow. So I think we've actually gone through a very complex movie. We, we kind of yada yada over a lot of it, but it's, I'm try, we're trying to make it easier for you because it's interesting if you watch this movie the second time how straightforward it is. Now, why don't you explain the plot maybe in a straightforward way without all the bullshit?
1: Uh, all right. The plot of this movie is that a pop idol is transitioning into becoming an actress. Her manager does not like the direction her career is taking. She does not like that she's tarnishing her image. And she decides, all right, well, if I can't stop her, I will kill everyone who's trying to force her into it, and I will try to become her.
0: That's it. Yeah, that's the whole movie. And everything other than that is just set dressing to try to tell the story in a more interesting way. But it's just mima being tormented by her manager who cannot handle this career change and is mentally ill to begin with and that's really the whole movie it's a story that has
1: three point of view characters sort of who are all unreliable like mima is definitely going through some issues with her image and who she is and is losing her grasp on reality Uh, Mimania has clearly lost his grasp on reality, and Rumi, we learn, at the end, has lost her grasp on reality as well. So, that makes it really difficult to tell what's going on at some points. Uh, on this past watch, I even thought that potentially, like, that one scene between, uh, Mima and Rumi that plays over and over again may have actually taken place in Mima's room, and was from Rumi's perspective, potentially— I'd have to go back and check to see if that's the case. But...
0: Wait, wait, in Mima's room or in Mima's Mima's room? Which one are we talking about? In the the fake Mima's room, the one
1: that Rumi is writing.
0: Yeah, I love that Rumi lives in a in an apartment that literally is just decorated exactly like Mima's. That, that makes things so much more complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that is a uh, fun little psychological thriller, a pretty twisted little movie, but... Again, very influential, and it does a lot of stuff really well. And again, I, I don't know anything about anime. I may never watch another anime movie again, but I'm really happy you brought this one to my attention because as psychological thrillers go, this is a fun one.
1: Yeah, it really is.
0: So uh, do you have anything else to say or plug or uh, details about this movie before we sign off here?
1: Um, I think that's about all I had. All I can really say is, like... I really wanted to showcase this movie just because, like, well, one, I thought it would be cool to get the first animated film on here, but no, you did South Park. I'm like, well, at least I can pitch this as the first foreign movie, and then you do, like, Spore Loose the Vanishing. <laughs> I'm like, damn it, now I have to try to sell this as the anime movie. And I, I don't want anyone listening to this to think of it as, like, an anime movie. This is... A proper film. It just ha- happens to be animated and it happens to be in Japanese.
0: Yeah, and it's uh, maybe the bloodiest movie I've done so far in Staff Picks, so you got that going for it.
1: <laughs> I guess I do.
0: It's definitely the rapiest movie. I don't know if that's really a badge of honor. <laughs> maybe not the biggest badge, no. <laughs> yeah, but again, I read this quote at the start. This is a actual sentence from an actual review that I do love. This is a film that will leave you with profound psychological scars and the feeling that you want to take a long, long shower afterwards, which I think is very fitting, to be honest.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And like you said, fan culture has really only gotten worse since 1997. So even though this movie feels dated, it really is not. Because if you know the reality of what like reality stars and celebrities and social media have to deal with, even the most benign reality TV stars, I mean, they're getting... I don't even know what kind of crap they're getting in their instant messages, but I know they're getting hell.
1: Yeah, like the the barrier for celebrity is so much lower now. Everyone is some form of celebrity to someone else. You know, parasocial relationships are the term that we use. You know, a a relationship that you have with someone as a performer but don't know as an actual person. And so – Yeah, the barrier for celebrity is a lot lower and the access to these celebrities is a lot higher. Mm
0: -hmm. And also like the legal ramifications or the ethical ramifications, anybody could start a website claiming to be a celebrity and start posting all this porn or nudity or graphic stuff. I'm not entirely sure there's a lot of avenues that a celebrity can shut that down all the time. Like, I think it would be pretty easy for fans to do that nowadays in this culture.
1: Yeah, it's the <laughs> the blue check mark is the only thing separating some people from a ton of fake imposter accounts.
0: Yeah, it's it's really crazy. And Andrew and I know the reality TV world, we kind of have talked about this before, but if you're not familiar with this, if you're not familiar with what reality TV stars go through or J-pop idols, it's it's pretty horrific. And it's actually changed the way I write about Survivor. This it's I'm kind of getting off topic a little bit, but I used to be very high on Survivor. I used to write about it, how awesome it was, how I wanted to be on it. My tone has changed so much over the years to now. I'm so sympathetic to anybody who goes on that show because I know what they have to go through. And I know how their image is completely fabricated by the producers. They have no recourse. I know how the fans will assault them and just be terribly or just terrible to them. I just know what it all entails that I'm so sympathetic to people who go on reality TV and I actually warn people these days. Like if I know you and I love you and I'm a friend of yours, I would tell you, do not get attached to that. Do do not associate yourself with that genre. It is really unhealthy. It's a bad idea. And this movie is a perfect example. Why? And this, again, my tone has changed and this movie really sums up kind of why. Mm -hmm. And I think it's time for our big plot twist. Andrew, are you ready for this? Yes. Now, I promised some plot twists in this movie and also this podcast, so this is where we reveal the big one, that I am actually not the real Mario, the host of Staff Picks, I am actually the fake one. All right, once again, this is Mario Lanza,
1: and this is Staff Picks. If you need to reach me, you can reach me at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until next time, I'll be searching for more movies that deserve more love, and I'll try to find somebody interesting to come on and talk about them. Talk to you guys later. Stay away from the internet. Bye. Excuse me, who are you? 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 you?